You're listening to the podcast of Church of the Holy Cross in Popper Bluff, Missouri, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at holycrosspb.org. You may have noticed that uh, we haven't yet gotten to the gospel yet. That's okay. Hold tight. Don't throw stones at me. We'll get there, I promise. But um, first this morning, I wanted to begin a little differently, getting into the sermon and and hold the gospel for a little later um, so we can kind of hear it in maybe a different context. You may have been familiar or heard the term. I don't know if it's a very popular term or not. I've used it often, but the Christmas morning syndrome. Maybe you had this as a kid. Um, so you're anticipating the coming of Christmas, right? You see those presents under the tree. You know Santa's coming, and it comes, and it's incredible, and it's awesome, and then it's Christmas afternoon, and it's over, and it's done, and now what? This kind of mundane melancholy kind of sets in. Um, or maybe you've experienced it in a different way. Maybe there's a big project that you think you're, you're in the middle of. And you think, if I can just get this done, life is going to make so much more sense. If we can just get the house built or get to retirement or get through school or whatever it is, and then it comes and it shows up and it's kind of like, that was wonderful, but now what? There's still kind of this something missing that hasn't quite brought us the fulfillment that we hoped it would. I call this the Christmas morning syndrome. And here in the Episcopal Church, our calendar kind of fights against this, right? We're here at the beginning of Christmas, the first Sunday of Christmas, and we have 12 days where we're sitting in the reality and the uh, awareness of Christ coming with us, of God with us, Emmanuel. But yet these long, mundane seasons that are often marked by melancholy seem to show up nonetheless to where we have to find something to do or to move toward or to accomplish or to reframe the story that we believe we're living in in order to just make it through Monday, right? If, not, if Monday is not the perfect uh, illustration of a mundane melancholy season, that which has come after the great arrival. See, Christmas for us is not a polite story we retell for sentimental decoration like the world around us but it's an opportunity to true our instruments and to align our story. So for me personally and my family, our matriarch, as you may know, died on the 23rd, on the day my whole family would gather and go uh, south of Donovan at our place on the river, and kids would be running everywhere, and they're in the middle of all the chaos, loving all of it. The one who brought us all together was Baba, Barbara, my grandmother. She was a constant in in our family, that when one member may be going off the rails or or causing conflict with someone else, she was the one that was the mediator that would bring us together and speak truth, right, in that (laughs) unvarnished, direct, bold way, and yet in a way that was so incredibly loving. And for me, I haven't, I've been privileged, I guess, in the sense that I haven't lost many people real close to me until until now. Experienced death, yes, but in this sense. And then even with my mother, 
and my, my aunts, losing someone like that kind of opens up this void of now what? Where's the bearing? Where's the rock? So when I hear the gospel reading this morning, which we're about to get to, this is kind of the situation I imagine John writing into. And he's writing into this situation, <clears throat> picking up on the coattails of another story and reframing it, the one that had shaped Israel for so many years. Before we get into that, I want to start with this thought and this idea that will kind of drive us in, in, as in through this sermon as we make our way through the story. Only when our chaos is situated in the context of a cosmic story can that chaos be confined and transformed. So imagine Genesis 1, right? This beautiful passage that we have that begins Scripture. Remember the context of which this story came, at least in the traditional sense. Scholars always have something else to say about what's going on. But the traditional understanding is that Genesis 1 was written by Moses in a period of time when Israel had just experienced something incredible. They had been led out of bondage in Egypt and are now trudging through the wilderness, had seen God do incredible things, had received the law, and done some kind of whatever crazy things along the way. But that was a decade ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, maybe. And here they are still trudging through this wilderness. Who are we? Yeah, God might have done something, but what now? We're met with this meaningless, everyday wandering in nowhere. God showed up, but now where is he? Imagine that setting. Another day where you get up and you strap on these sandals and you follow Moses wherever he's going. And Moses starts to sense this angst and this frustration and this depression and this anxiety of this everyday endless trudging through the wilderness. And he hears something from God and he puts it down and he gives it to the people. And he says it this way rather than giving them more direction and order and more rules, he says, in the beginning, God. He immediately frames it from the very beginning of the cosmic story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. While a wind from God swept over the face of the waters, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light and it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. See, what, what is going on here is not necessarily the, the speaking into existence of matter and all that is, it kind of presupposes that there was a formless void. It's this Hebrew word of tohu wabu. I always get it wrong, but it's this, this idea of chaos. There's stuff going on and it doesn't make sense and God speaks a story into existence. 
And when he does, order comes into the chaos. And there was light and there was darkness the first day. Time begins to take shape. See, these religious stories and rituals, as one author said, serve as binding agents for communal and individual meaning-making. So in the middle of the chaos, we hear a story to make sense of our story. Jane Hirschfeld said it this way, narrative uses the structure of time to defeat the ephemerality of time. A story. In the midst of the, the mundane and the melancholy, God through Moses gives the Israels this story that begins in a cosmic story that is, we pick up already in the middle of. Every story begins in the middle of things. There is no real beginning necessarily. We pick up that somewhere in the beginning God created. The turning point or the crux of the story usually turns around the moment the main character realizes or decides the nature of the story they're living in. It's kind of like Star Wars, right? The very first Star Wars that came out, and you see these floating block letters, we're already in the middle of something going on. But yet this is when the order starts coming into chaos. It always begins in chaos, the narrative and the story that comes forward. He then gives them a commission. That was the context. He gives them a commission. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion. And you know the rest of the story. He gave them a context. And then he gave them a commission. A commission to continue the ordering. Gave them a responsibility of stewardship of handing over the controls of this wonderful, beautiful creation he had just given them with his image, and then he sent them forth as his royal emissaries to continue this ordering. So just as Genesis situated Israel's chaos in a, the context of a cosmic story, so too John, in our gospel reading today, I believe, is, is situating the church's story, our story, in an even broader narrative. So remember, again, where we probably are in, in the Gospel of John. Jesus has lived. Jesus has died. Many of his hearers probably remember this, or at least the stories. It's the last Gospel to be written. The church is kind of finding their way in the world, spreading. People are coming to faith. And then Peter, the spokesman of the apostles, is crucified upside down in Rome. It was somewhere in this time, likely, that John puts pen to paper and writes his version of the account. There's already three floating around out there, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, likely. And they all begin starting with the historical reality, right? The, the, the genealogy of where this Jesus came from, situating it in the historical facts as they were. And we begin there as well, right? There is no historian of any credibility that denies the fact that Jesus actually existed in a time and a place and was crucified under Pontius Pilate as we recite every week. But God, uh, John lifts the curtain a little bit. And as the church is finding their way in the world, he situates their story back in the cosmic narrative. And then we get to our reading today. 
the gospel. So think of what this might have heard or sounded like or felt like coming to you as a follower of Jesus in this, that, that time and that way, expecting Jesus to have shown up by now, and yet it's another Monday, and we've lost another brother, and here we are finding our way in this wilderness. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and that darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light. But he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Remember the context. Remember the setting. As all the other Gospels begin with the Incarnation, John instead speaks immediately of a cosmic story. He situated the story not just in space and time, but in the cosmic story. And then he gives us bearings for where we are in the story. And did you catch this, the nature of story and the meaning it gives? And what does he then call Jesus? The word, the logos. Logos implies order and purpose, reason and rationality, logic, ology. That's where we get this, these, these words. The word. The entirety of creation only comes together in an ordered sense when it is constructed with word and story. Only when it is understood as a narrative orbiting around the word, Jesus, does it start to take shape even in our melancholy and our mundane Monday mornings, when we experience a Christmas morning syndrome. And then we hear a commission in situating us in the story. You see, all stories do a few things. All stories answer something. And the story you tell of your life is answering these things. Who you are, where you are in the story, what went wrong in your story, 
and what the solution is. So those insurrectionists on January 6th understood themselves at a place in a story. And the only way that story was going to be made right as if they or that business executive that works through at the sake of his family understands there's a problem. And the only way this story is going to be made right is if diagnose your story. What is the solution that you believe if, if you just accomplished or got to would make things right? Diagnose your narrative. And what we hear in both the Genesis 1 story and the story in John 1 about who we are is something with royal imagery, the image of God. Or in Galatians, not a slave, but a child, and if a child, then an heir to God. And later on in John, he, he, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And then seemingly in the middle of this cosmic story, he enters in John, an epitome, the, the, the epitome of someone who understood his place in the story, who Jesus would later say about, this is the one of whom it is written, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, of those born of women, no one has arisen that is greater than John the Baptist. And then he adds this line, Jesus does, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Understand who you are in your story, an heir to the king. But what does that even mean? Later in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, we see what this quintessential image of, of uh, someone who understands their place in the story, in the drama, the way they approach their story. He who was the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy, John says, has been fulfilled. And then he says, he must increase and I must decrease. John says of Jesus, pointing his disciples to them, he must increase and I must decrease. You see, the special mark of the hero in this story that God is telling is not when they are strong, but when they are weak. Their commission in the context of the story is always for the sake of others. See, when we lose sight of the story that God is telling, we're called to live into a chaos that begins to creep into the story again. Churches begin to fight over trivial matters when they lose sight of the grand story that God is telling that they are, should be living into. When all of a sudden the color of the carpet becomes more important to the circumstances of those around them. Or they confuse the plot of the story as being about us. We believe we are the heroes of the story. We begin to imagine God as a distant deity rather than that one who has come and made his home among with us. Rather than one who is always present and at work. We believe that we have to fight to get God's attention To bring something near, rather than remembering that who said, he who said, I'm always with you. And in him we live and move and have our being. 
The season of Christmas that we are now entering into is the season of Emmanuel, God with us in our story. And only when our chaos is situated in the context of this cosmic story can it be confined and transformed. Your story will only be lived well. And that end that will find each of us, when it finds us, will only find its place when it's pointing to the word who constructed the story. So our story then is not one that has to be reimagined, but realigned. I must decrease and he must increase. Greg Mobley, in writing in something similar, said chaos is the raw material of creation. Chaos is the raw material of creation. Just like in Genesis 1 in the beginning. Just like in John 1 when the church is being sent out into the world. Chaos is where God does his greatest work. In the melancholy. In the mundane. In the everyday meaningless trudge. So let us remember then that we are not the hero of the story. You're an heir to the hero. Your story is not done, but the choice is yours to increase or to decrease in order to live into the story. And your audience is sitting on the edge of their seat waiting for you to listen for where God is at work in the chaos and decide to realign our story to the one God has been writing. Amen.